Thank you. <laughs> Trying to make myself fit into this lovely 1045 family in Door Hall. We are excited. To, we are launching a sermon series which actually has a trajectory from now until springtime. Not that the sermon series is that long. It is only seven weeks. But we would like to invite you into a season of your life and ours where we learn not, well, we learn about law, law and grace. may not sound exciting, but I think before the end of it, you, you might even say, that was a pretty exciting conversation. It's going to cause you and uh, require some thinking on your part and some processing. And please understand that you're only getting a piece of the pie today and that there's a seven parts to this pie plus more to come as we go through uh, the year ahead of us. Uh, the title of this sermon series is this, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, How Not to Be a Law-Abiding Citizen. Law and grace, and we're going to talk about the law today, not much, perhaps, great news in the law, but great news before we finish. We hear so much about God's grace. But to fully appreciate God's grace, we must understand about God's law. And I suspect if you are like me, most of us don't really understand about God's law, or we don't understand how we are to live with it, and we think and believe we are to live under it, and that is not correct. There's an obvious twist here when I say how not to be a law-abiding citizen, because, of course, the world likes law-abiding citizens. We like law-abiding neighbors. We want our children to be law-abiding. So why then a focus on not being law-abiding? Because the New Testament... Paul writes over and over, but he writes it in various places. Sometimes it's kind of tucked away. One of those tucked away places is Romans 10, chapter, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 4. And Paul writes, Christ is the end of the law. We are here to learn over these seven weeks. What does that mean? Christ is the end of the law. Journey with me and Tyler and John and small group leaders and others through the year ahead, fall, winter, and spring, as we spend time to examine what I can tell you is one of the most misunderstood and most abused ideas in Christianity, God's law. What it can do, yes, but what it very clearly does not do. So in taking this journey from now until the spring, we are really going to lay down the law. Now what does that mean? Does it mean we really laid down the law? Try harder, work more, try again? Or does it mean we laid down the law? Really? I'm fooling with you some. So let's see what this means for our practical, functioning lives 
over these seven weeks within the family of Jesus, within our family relationships from siblings to parents to in-laws and so on and so forth, cousins, within the uh, whole arena of generosity and giving, uh, how that looks in our neighborhood and at Bilo, in our social settings, in other words. And let's conclude on a high note as the last sermon, uh, the last, the seventh week is, grace in everything, live a life of love. Now, is that a command? Is that a law? Or is that something else? Sounds like an imperative, doesn't it? Is that more law or is it not? And yet Paul writes, live a life of love. And that last week we will just dwell on this idea of default mode for all of us is that we tend to find ourselves again and again back under law-based living. Brothers and sisters, I command you to come every seven weeks. You cannot miss a Sunday. That's an order. Now, that's the way the law always sounds. Whatever you are feeling right now, from the front row to the back row, what you just heard, that is the way the law makes you feel, whatever you're feeling inside. The law provokes us. The law makes us bow up. David Ford, I dare you to cross this line. I've just drawn across the court here. I suspect one of David's reactions is not a glad yes. First of all, he's asking why I've singled him. He's thinking, why am I singling him out? What has he done wrong or something? And there's always something that bows us up in us when anybody says to us, I dare you to do anything. I dare you to cross the line. I dare you to jump in that pool. I dare you... And um, the law becomes operative. The law provokes. It critiques. It criticizes. The law is harsh and unrelenting. How would you like to be a to not be a law-abiding disciple for the next seven weeks? You see, we live in grave danger in our lives. The road of life, the path of life, has precipices on the right and on the left. Ellen and I out in the west last summer in Glacier National Park, seeing the most, one of the most extraordinary construction projects from the 1920s uh, it's called the Road to the Sun. It has only one hairpin turn in it, and other than that, it's carved into the rocks of the glaciers and mountains and goes up and up and up and up and up. For thousands of feet, there was still 15 feet of snow on the, right, on the road in places, even in July. Uh, the road to the sun, what a glorious experience. But boy, was I nervous too, because on the right, there were precipices that looked like thousands of feet dropped then, and other times on the left, there were precipices that looked like a thousand foot drop. And in those years, the 1920s, they built a very, very low curb I mean, it was not a wall. Uh, this little 18-inch or 20-inch tall stone thing to protect you from going over. But when a car is coming the other way, it feels awfully close at times. We are in grave danger as we make our way through life. We're familiar with one of those grave dangers on the left. It's the danger of sin. Sin being missing the point or missing the mark for our lives. Sin meaning well, I crossed the line. I, um, I should have stayed on this side of the line, and I crossed out of bounds. 
That's a grave sin. Uh, it looks like disobedience and rebellion. Um, and yet there's a second grave danger as well. It's on the other side. It's the danger of the law. And it's more difficult to understand this danger because it is something good that we call a danger if we are to believe the Bible. For the Bible tells us the law is holy, right, and good. Jesus says in today's gospel, not one, you know, uh, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He puts, uh, he says the law is good. So one way to get at this is to understand that um, living in law or living in sin, they each produce a life of despair and a life of lostness. The end result is not what we sought. On the sin side, sin is a progressive debilitation of the human spirit. It's always a progressive disease of the soul. It ultimately, the Bible says to us clearly, and we know it perhaps even from experience, it ultimately leads to death, the death of dreams, the death of plans, the death of relationships, marriages, or relationships between fathers and sons or mothers and daughters, the death of um, ultimately our relationship with God himself. Sin produces for us what we call an unrighteous life, a life that is not right with God. Law is on the other end of the spectrum. We try to be good because the law is right and good and holy. We try to be good. We try to imitate the elder brother of the prodigal son's story who did everything his father ever asked him to do, who was loyal and faithful, a laborer, the younger son that gets in such a mess. We try to be like the elder brother. When we fail, we feel shame and guilt and despair. And when we succeed, something even uglier is produced for a law keeper. What is produced is arrogance. I'm better than they. Judgmentalism. I'm better than they. Thank goodness I'm not like them. It produces a harsh, look-down-your-nose-at-others kind of person. If living in sin produces unrighteousness, off to this way, living in law produces self-righteousness over here. Let's learn seven truths about the law today. That's too many to remember. We'll put them on the board. You might want to um, listen to this on the uh, website again, or you might want to write these down. But first of all, what I'm talking about when I talk about law is not merely the Ten Commandments or the teachings of the New Testament. We're talking now of law in the broadest of terms, which I believe is what Jesus and Paul both were approaching it as also. That the law is any form of external command. Ellen tells me to do something. My wife, Ellen, tells me to do something. That's a command. That's a form of the law. I tell Ellen to do something. And that's a form of the law. And most of the time, when we do it that way, it doesn't do very well. It doesn't work very well. There's no please or thank you is what I'm th- the picture I have. 
just telling somebody, do this. It doesn't work very well. Law is any form of external command. But secondly, law is true. It is right and good and holy, as we said earlier. But it is impotent and counterproductive when we try to keep the law. It doesn't help us to keep the law. In fact, it inspires us to react against it. Point three, law creates the opposite of what it intends to create. It intends to create law-abiding, law-keeping individuals. But instead, the temptation to break the law is greater than the desire to keep it. Adam and Eve, you can have all the trees in this garden. You have access to the fruit on those trees. You can do anything you want with them. One tree. The law creates the opposite of what it intends to create. The one tree is what gets to Adam and Eve. Fourth. If it's not clear yet, the law is incapable of producing the motivation to obey it. It just doesn't work for us. It doesn't inspire us. It doesn't give us a want to. Five, the law makes no exceptions. It is entirely merciless. We see the law all the time operative in sports. I saw one fellow make an extraordinary catch in one of those football games yesterday, and his foot was on the white line by about half a shoe, leaping out of bounds, catching the ball, but it didn't count. The law is merciless entirely. And with the law, point six, the demand of the law always, without exception, creates resistance. So I may do what Ellen has commanded me to do, but not without a bit of resistance, right? And she may do because she's being loving what I've told her to do rather than asked her to do. But there's a degree of resistance there as well. We experience it all the time with our children as we try to teach or encourage them to be obedient, to keep the law, in other words. But finally, keep in mind, that the law has a reduction about it. It reduces the human person to despair because you didn't do enough. You made a 2.9, why didn't you make a 3.0? You made a 3.1, why didn't you make a 3.2? It can be reduced down to the tenth of a degree or a hundredth of a second in a race. The law has a heavy hand on your shoulder and on mine, those of us who want to keep it. So, God willing, let's get to grace as fast as we can in the weeks ahead. But we cannot fully understand the grace we will speak about in the weeks ahead without first understanding God's law. And we will come back to this over and over again until we try to sort of embrace it and get it. Give it more than a week, in other words. Well, what does law look like? We've tried to express that and describe that. I'd like to show a film clip from a, a, a rather, uh, perhaps not the greatest of movies, uh, Whatever Happens in Vegas. Um, we're not going to watch the whole flick. It'd be, uh, we wouldn't allow it to be watched, would we, in here? <laughs> but uh, I believe this clip might be instrumental for what the law looks like and what it feels like. Take a, take a peek.
you win, I'm out. I win, I get a second chance. It's not a second chance when you've had a hundred million. law reduces its object, the human person, to despair. The law makes no exceptions. It is entirely merciless. And you may view that little cut in various ways. Uh, a grace reference of, I've given you a hundred chances before, this is the last chance. But uh, what you hear in there is a law-based uh, command that the young man uh, resists and is disobedient to and has obviously been for some time. The father doesn't get it either, and there's another little 30-second clip here I want you to see where uh, it kind of confirms that this is a, uh, a, a law-based father-son relationship. You know, it is just so nice to finally meet the man who has taught Jack everything he knows. I tried. Well, something must have stuck. Do you know that he made this bar that we're sitting at? Isn't it beautiful? I mean, look. Dovetails off in the corner. Well, I think it's great. I actually think that Jack can sell his furniture. I don't know. That would require actually finishing it. Maybe you should try telling Jack you don't want him to finish it, and then maybe he would actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> but can you hear the pain in that laughter, that forced laughter of his? The grace that we are hinting at, we hear in Cameron Diaz's uh, support of this young man, but the law is what we hear from the, the one who's in charge, the ever-present father. Whether it's the Olympic stats, I'm just fascinated and kind of marvel. I know the Olympics are a great and good thing, but uh, we measure people's worth by hundreds of a second. Usain Bolt beat the second runner in the men's 100 meter by 12 hundredths of a second. His name will be remembered. The rest were losers, weren't they? In the men's shot put, uh, one fellow defeated the other by three hundredths of a meter's distance in the shot put. One will be remembered for his gold medal. The other will be remembered, well, he got a medal, but it was second place. It was second rate. That's how it goes on and on for all of our lives. 
There are hundreds of football teams that played yesterday, hundreds. Half of them lost. But by the end of the year, there will only be one who won it all, and everyone else will be considered, every other team, second rate and second class because they didn't do it. That's the way the law works. It is merciless. And yet, the law is good. It's holy, right, and good. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How is he going to do that? In him and in us. He reminds us that it's not only outward behavior, but the inner disposition of the heart. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery, the physical act of that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Later in Matthew, Jesus has a primary confrontation with the law keepers. He confronts our law-keeping behaviors too. Woe to you, teachers of the law! You shut the kingdom of men, of heaven, in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter enter. Woe to you, teachers of the law! You travel over land and sea with a single to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental, looking down on others. Woe to you, teachers of the law! You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so Paul will write in the fourth chapter that we heard this morning, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. You are under a curse if you rely on observing the law to get right with God. I'm trying harder. He was a good person. He tried. He worked at it. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. The law curses us and our lives if we're trying to keep it. There's got to be something else, and there's got to be something more, and there is. So, who wants to love the law, to do what God considers right and good and holy, yet be free from being threatened and judged and weighed down by the law? Who wants to be like that? Who wants to better understand how God's law works? Who wants to be a law-abiding disciple by not being a law-abiding disciple? Who wants to discover, encounter the great mystery and the mysterious power of grace which supernaturally, mysteriously produces in us the ability to keep up the law but we're unconscious and unaware that we were even doing it. We were just doing the right thing, and we didn't even aware that we were doing it because we ought to or had to. It's something that was natural, and we wanted to. Well, the answer to that question for me is I do. I do want to keep God's law, but I don't want to be threatened by God's law or weighed down by it or judged by it and I do not want to become arrogant and judgmental about others that I came to church Sunday, but my neighbor did not. I did this, but my neighbor did not. I did this, but they did not. I want to discover the great mystery of grace. Do not come next week or for the next six weeks because I told you to. That would be the law. 
Do not come next week because you ought to or should. That would be life under the law. Don't come next week. You're free not to come. Come, though, if you want to come next week. And as for me, I can't wait to come next week. I can't wait to hear about grace. I can't wait to worship with my friends and my family. I can't wait until next week. Indeed, Christ is the end of the law.